Make our way, Lord willing, through the book of Colossians tonight. Uh, Philippians was two weeks ago. Last week I wasn't able to be here. I was sick. And by the way, next week we won't be meeting uh, with holidays. So um, Colossians chapter 1 tonight, though, we'll pick up at verse 1 and um, we'll hit highlights as we've been doing in each of our books. And this is a short book. Um, like Philippians, it has four chapters. And um, the theme of Colossians is in Christ complete. And the key verse for that is found in chapter 2, verse 10. For it says, For in Him, in Jesus, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, verse 9. And then because of that, verse 10, And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. We're complete in our Savior. We have everything we need uh, spiritually as far as for salvation goes. But then as far as Christian growth goes, that's a daily thing that we, where we need Him every day in our walk with Him. But in Christ, we're complete. We have everything. When we got saved, we had every, everything we need uh, for, for a life of, uh, of godliness. And it has four chapters in it, as I mentioned, just like Philippians. It's short. Um, and so it's a four-chapter book. And we'll look at a, a division of it chapter by chapters. Time, uh, time of the event uh, of the book is um, same, about the same time period as when Ephesians and Philippians were written. Uh, we mentioned that Paul, well, the book of Acts, those events start at 33 A.D. till about 65 roughly A.D. And Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. He was in prison in Rome in 62 A.D. And uh, sometime in, during that, first, that time of being in prison for... Um, his faith, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and then another little one-chapter book we'll get to hopefully uh, after first a year, and that's a little book called Philemon. It's just one chapter, and these are what are called his prison epistles. They were written while he was in prison for the, his faith. And so he was martyred uh, somewhere around anywhere from four to six years after, after that time. So that's the time frame on it. Now, Colossae is a city in the region of what, what we call Asia Minor, the western part of Asia. Um, and so when you look at the map, um, Jerusalem is down here. And remember, that's where everything began, where the church was born there in, in Jerusalem. And the Lord told him in the early book of, uh, first chapter of the book of Acts, he said, uh, go to, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which is all right in here, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and spread the gospel. Well, as time went by, um, they, they uh, were spreading the gospel, and they were heading north, northwest. And Syria is a city, or excuse me, is a country right above them. And Antioch in Syria became the headquarters of the church. And so the gospel was moving north and west. And during Paul's missionary journey, um, I think I mentioned that on, um, well, I mentioned about his imprisonment. But during his missionary journey, he visited some of those in, on his different missionary journeys. Um, so we talked about, so far, we talked about the two letters, First and Second Corinthians. There's Corinth towards the west there, which is in Greece. And uh, let's see, Philippi, the letter to the Philippians, is kind of north part of there in a region called Macedonia. And then Ephes or, uh, the book of Ephesians is written to the, to the Christians there in the city of Ephesus. And we saw those two weeks ago. And then Colossae. It's, a, it's not quite as far west as Ephesus. So that gives you kind of a, an idea from traveling from Jerusalem to where the city of Colossae is found. And here's a little closer up map broken down a little bit more. Um, you see, 
As you look at it, Colossians over here, um, and we'll come back to this. There's a reason that, that I'm using this map here. When Jesus told John in Revelation chapters 1 and 2, uh, or excuse me, chapters 2 and 3 to write to the seven churches um, there in Asia Minor, uh, they were right close to Colossae. In fact, um, the churches were the church at Ephesus, which we've already seen Ephesus, and uh, right here, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea is just northwest of Colossae. And we're going to look at that a little bit tonight in our study of Colossians because that, that little town's mentioned, and, and I think there's a reason for that. But anyway, um, and then when you see it uh, on the map here, you see these other cities that are um, later on are written, the letters that, that uh, Paul, Jesus tells John to write to those, those seven churches there, but Colossae's right there next to um, Laodicea. So let's look at that and take a little bit of a scenic route. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. Then we're going to come back and look at a little bit of an outline of the book. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I would that you know what great conflict I have for you. He's writing to the Christians there at Colossae. And for them it led to see it. Remember on the map, it's just a little bit northwest. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So he mentions that little town of Laodicea. And again, that's, that's, um, it's just northwest of uh, Colossae. So let's look a little bit about this and find out a little significance about this, this city. So Paul, um, apparently as he's uh, been in prison for the gospel, he has, um, he, he has desired that the believers there at Colossae and at Laodicea grow in their faith because there's a lot of persecution going on. Look at chapter 4 of Colossians. Look at verse 13. For I bear record that he hath a great zeal. And he's talking about a man named Epaphras. We'll come back to him in a moment. He's found in verse 12. Hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them that are in Hierapolis. Skip down to 15. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphas and the church which is in his house. One more time, verse 16. And when this epistle is read among you, cause it to be read also the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So, Paul had great concern for the believers there in, in Colossae. And because they were so close to that other, other city called Laodicea, he wanted them to take this letter, which we have included in Scripture, um, and um, once they've read it, send it to, to the believers there at Laodicea. But then he says something interesting at the end of verse 16, that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So this is one of Paul's letters that he wrote to a church, but it was not included in Scripture for whatever reason. Um, it was not included as one of the letters that we have from, written from Paul. Um, and, but nevertheless, he had apparently written one to them, and he, he wanted them to exchange the letter to Colossians, when they read theirs, send it to Laodicea, and then take the one that was sent to Laodicea to Colossae. But for whatever reason, that was not included. But then when you go over to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the very last, the seventh of the seven churches that Jesus tells John um, the apostle, he wants him to write to these churches a letter. It says in chapter 3 of Revelation, starting verse 14, we'll only read a couple of verses. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So when you read down through there, you find out that the church there at Laodicea, it's a lukewarm church. 
It's a church that was not on fire for the Lord, but they weren't cold either. They were lukewarm. And so the interesting thing here is they, um, the believers there had had letters from Paul uh, written to him, uh, to them. And uh, apparently, though, uh, they just at some point began to just ignore what Paul had to say and became uh, spiritually lukewarm. And so Paul had a great concern for them. And then many years after he died, um, probably 25 years or so after Paul died, roughly, um, Jesus has John write to them. And when he does, he finds them as being lukewarm. So um, just a little bit of kind of background of those two cities together, Colossae and Laodicea. So let's look at and break down the, the book. Two very simple uh, ways to break it down, two sections. Chapter one and chapters one and two. Um, there's a, a good bit of doctrine found in those, chap- in those two chapters, and we'll hit some highlights about that in just a few moments. But then chapters 3 and 4 are very practical. And when you read those two chapters, uh, 3 and 4, you, you, if you go back, you'll see a lot of similarity between those chapters and some of the, the couple of the chapters in, in Ephesians. Very, very similar Colossians and Ephesians in those places. Chapter 1, verse 9 to 14, Paul has, he writes, um, starting at verse 19, and he, there's a prayer that he, that he includes, includes in his letter to the Colossians right after he greets them in the first several verses. And then he talks to them about um, uh, a fellow, uh, fellow servant named Epaphras. And then he talks about how he prayed for them. Let's look at a little bit before we get there. Let's look a little bit at the earlier part of chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. Of course, Timotheus is Timothy, just a long version of the name Timothy. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus, which are at, uh, in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he greets them in the name of Jesus, and then uh, writes about, commends them. Um, look, look at verse uh, 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. Verse 6, which is coming to you is in all the world and bringeth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. And then he mentions a, a brother named Epaphras, which we'll come back to in a few moments before, uh, as we end by the time we end the uh, book of Colossians, who's a dear fellow servant. So uh, the church at Colossae had a lot of good things going on. There's some things Paul had to write to them and warn them about, but they had a lot of good things going on. It was a church that was serving the Lord and, um, and doing a, a lot of great things for him. So start at chapter 1, verse 9. Let's read a couple of verses of the prayer that Paul prays for them. For this cause also, uh, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul has a he prays for the believers there at Colossae, and they you know they have a lot of good things going on. But as he's praying for them, he says, "I'm praying that you'll increase in knowing God's will. I'm praying that you'll increase in the uh, spiritual understanding." that you'll walk worthy of the Lord, that is, your spiritual walk will be pleasing to Him, it says in verse 10, unto all pleasing. Uh, Spiritually bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. And then verse 11, to be strengthened with all might. So he prays this for these believers, and that's a great pattern to use to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray for someone else, especially a new believer. 
You pick up at verse 15 of chapter 1, and then he begins to talk about, um, it goes from the, his prayer for the Colossians to the preeminent person of Jesus Christ. Um, verse 14 ends that prayer, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then he says in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Um, when he says firstborn there, it means uh, in priority, in the first, in, in um, importance, in, as we'll see the word in a moment, preeminence. Uh, verse 16 tells us that he created all things. All things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he's before all things. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. Uh, Jesus is the head of the body. And then it comes back actually in chapter um, I think chapter 4 mentions that again, or chapter 3 mentions that again, uh, about him being um, the head of the body. So he is the head of the body, and then uh, in him all fullness dwells. And then we saw in chapter 2 that we are complete in him, in the full, uh, who he is in his fullness. Then chapter 1, verse 20, uh, verse 29, it tells us his powerful work um, through his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. Uh, start at verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. And then he begins to tell us how you know, we were enemies of God before we were saved, but through Christ we're, we're brought to Him. The word reconcile means to take two that were once at, uh, at odds with each other and bring them together in a fellowship together. And so we, are, we have fellowship through the, um, with the Father through Jesus Christ. We're reconciled. Uh, once we were enemies of God because we were you know, lost in our sins and, trans and trespasses, the Bible says in Ephesians, but we have been reconciled. We have been, um, things have been made right through Jesus Christ. We have peace through the Lord Jesus and we're reconciled to God. So reconciled, the long word is reconciliation. That's another word for just simply for being saved. We've been reconciled. We've been saved. So it talks about his uh, powerful work. We're going to come back to this, I think, in a moment. But look down at verse um, 27 and 28. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says that um, Jesus, he is the hope of glory for us. And Paul says, we preach him, we warn and teach everyone that we'll present them perfect to our maturity in Christ. Um, not perfect as far as sinless, but to our full maturity in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 15, he gives the answer to humanism, and that is Jesus. The key verse is verse 3. In whom are hid, chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all found in Jesus. Um, Everything, all the wisdom that we, real wisdom we need and need to know, and that knowledge is found uh, in Him. And we'll come back to a few verses of chapter 2 in just a moment. Chapter 2, verse 16 to 23 is the answer to religious practice. Paul, in those verses, uh, says, um, he says, Don't let anyone judge you uh, about holy days. And so, um, verse 16, new moon or the Sabbath days. What he's, what he's saying there is, Remember, there are in, in um, 
In Colossae, many of them that were saved were Gentiles, but some of them were Jews that had been saved, and some of them, they were Jewish, and they still kept some of the feasts and some of the holy days observed, like Passover, and and observed that. And Paul says, don't let anyone judge you in those things. If someone wants to keep those feasts, that's all good and fine, but don't, don't let them try to make you think that you're a less spiritual Christian because you don't keep those holy days that they keep. Um, don't think that you're not a spiritual Christian just because of that. Don't let them judge your spirituality just because you do not practice those things. And read on down through there, and there's some other things we'll come back to, I believe, in just a moment. We have some verses um, picked out a little bit later to look at in this same section. We're going to continue on through the overview real quick. So in chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, he tells us to have heavenly affections now. Um, I'll go ahead and read this section, verse 1 to 4. If ye then be risen with Christ. Now, that's not a word of doubt. That's a word of, of certainty. Paul writes like uh, almost like a lawyer writes. He's, what he does is when he writes something, he says, if this is true, then this is true because that is true. So the word if there is not like if you've been saved. He's saying you have, if you've been, because you're saved, this is true. If ye then be risen with Christ, and we have spiritually, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And he tells us why, for we're dead, and our life is hid with Christ in God. In other words, um, the uh, the world, our affections, the world's going to vie for those. It's going to try to get our affections and our thinking, our our feelings. uh, um, and, uh, And so he says, realize that in Christ... You're hidden with Christ, and you're to set your affections, set, set your affections on things that are above, things in heaven, things that are eternal, not on earth. And then he gives a promise in verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Then it talks about, from chapter 3, verse 5, the rest of that chapter, going way on into uh, six verses of chapter 4, he talks about not only heavenly affections now, in chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, but starting in chapter 3, verse 5, he talks about holy living here. And he talks about, the um, as believers, the things to put off. Look at verse 8. But now put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, fill the communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another. Verse 10, put on these things. And you put on the new man, skip down to verse 12, put on therefore the elect, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, verse 13, forbearing one another. So Paul gives us the example, notice he says verse 10, to put on the new man. He gives the example that as believers in Christ, we have a new nature within us. So he says rather than putting clothes on the old sin nature, that, and he lists some of those things we saw there in verse number 9, um, he says, to put off the old sin nature, and of course we're never going to get completely rid of it till we go to till we, till we get to heaven. But he says rather than um, putting uh, all these things on that are wrong and sin and disobedient to God, rather than that, put on what belongs to the new nature, the new nature in Christ. Um, he says in verse twelve, kindness, humbleness. Uh, verse thirteen, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. Um, verse fourteen, he uses the word charity, which is a uh, uh, a stronger word for love. Um, and then he says to let the peace of God rule your heart. So because of who we are in Christ, we have a new nature. And he says, put these things on rather than uh, 
allowing the old nature to, to rule you and to run your life. Then chapter 4, verse 7 to 18, he talks about helpful fellowship everywhere. He talks about um, verse, um, let's see. Actually, when you get into chapter 4 there, he continues on talking about um, uh, holy living now, and he talks about uh, uh, parents uh, and children, uh, husbands and wives in chapter 3, parents and children, chapter 4, um, servants, masters, chapter 4 rather, excuse me. And then you pick up verse 7 and begins to name some people that are very helpful. And we're going to come back to those, to a couple of those in a moment and spend some time looking at those. Uh, people that are very helpful, um, fellow believers in Christ, they're helpful to Paul and they're helpful to the church there at Colossae. Let's go back and look at... Um, Spend a little time looking at some of these verses a little closer. Chapter 1, verse 13. Um, Colossians 1, 13. It tells us this. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So the Bible tells us over in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that before we trusted Christ... We were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, verse 1, down through verse 3. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So Ephesians gives a little bit more of a description of it, but chapter 1, verse 13 says, We have been translated from, delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear, dear, son, uh, of, his dear son, of Jesus. So what does the word translate mean? Well, we were lost, we were without Christ, and he delivered us, he saved us, and one of the things he did uh, besides saving us from, you know, um, a future in hell. He also, it says, delivered us from the power of darkness uh, from our enemy. And he's translated us to the kingdom of his dear son. The word translate means basically to pick something up somewhere and, and um, take it and place it somewhere else. So when, uh, when, a, when, a, when someone's translating something from one language to another, they pick up the word in the one language they take that word, when they translate it, they put it in the new language, a word or a phrase that, that well describes and defines the word in the other language, and they place it, um, place it into the, to the new language. So you, we've been translated, we've been taken and moved into the kingdom of God's Son. Now physically, we're still here on earth, but spiritually, we have been, we've been placed into the kingdom of God's Son. We now belong to His kingdom. Chapter 1, verse 14 uh, uses the word redemption. And I said a while ago we talked about that word uh, reconciled as a, as a word of salvation. But saw also the word redemption there in verse 14. And whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. To redeem means to purchase something. We have been bought with a price. We've been bought with the price of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And redemption means a payment for salvation. Over in the book of Romans, chapter 3, Romans 3 and verse number 24, the Bible tells us this, being justified freely by His grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's our word again, redemption, uh, to redeem, to purchase. We have been redeemed through the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it says there, um, we're justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19 says that we're redeemed not by silver and gold or anything that's corruptible, but by the precious blood of Christ without, without blemish and without spot. So uh, the word redemption means a payment for our salvation. So uh, that's a key verse in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 14. And it talks about our salvation. We've been redeemed. Chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, I read uh, those verses a while ago, or at least one, one or two of them. And this passage talks about how Jesus has, cre- has authority over all creation. Um, he's the image of the invisible God. Uh, verse 16, for by him were all things created. They're in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created by him and for him. They were created um, for his glory, for his good. Now, unfortunately, um, some things like Satan, when Satan was created, he w- wasn't created for the purpose that he has now. He was created to be in heaven and as part of the worship going on in heaven, but he rebelled against God. He fell. He had a free will and he fell and rebelled against God. And even though he was, he is a created being by God, God is not the one that created him to fall, to, to, um, to, um, to fall from, from heaven. Uh, that was his choice. That's what he did. But ultimately, all things are created by him, and they're created for him. Um, they're created for his glory. Revelation 4 says uh, he has created all things, and for his pleasure they are and were created. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise because of that. Uh, let's see. So... Chapter 16, uh, 1 verse 16 mentions principalities and powers. And when we were over in um, Ephesians the other week, we just, I mentioned uh, we would look at it a little more when we got to Colossians uh, because there were, there were a lot more things to look at in Ephesians. It's a little bit longer letter, six chapters in Ephesians. But um, there are a few references about this phrase, principalities and powers. And in chapter 8, and verse 38 of Romans, it says this. Then we're going to come back to Colossians in a moment. Uh, For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. And then verse 39 says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we saw that he created all things, whether even principalities and powers. What are those things? Well, uh, apparently, principalities and powers are fallen creatures, um, angels, if you will, that disobeyed against God and fell, and they are they are fallen. They are um, fallen from God's purpose for them, and by their choice, they chose to do that. And so, in chapter two of Colossians, verse ten, um, it says, "He's the head of all principality and power, Jesus." And then verse 15 says he spoiled principalities and powers. But when you go to Ephesians, there are a couple other verses about this. We didn't, we didn't get the time to look at these when we studied Ephesians. But chapter 1, verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Um, chapter 3 
of Ephesians in verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So they're in heavenly places. We can't see them physically with our eyes. They are, um, they're not as far as up in the throne of God, but yet they are above planet earth and they are that which cannot be seen. They're called principalities and powers. Um, they're also what we would call, uh, many call demonic forces. And so um, the, the scripture speaks of those. And then in chapter 6, verse 12, it's a little more specific about them. And it says this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So um, those principalities and powers have fallen from originally what they were intended to be. Um, they fail when Lucifer fell. And uh, some of them will yet fall in the future, according to uh, Revelation 12. But they fail when Lucifer fell. And because of that, they are uh, spiritual beings that are in, uh, completely uh, against God and anything about God. And so one day, um, their uh, fate will be reckoned. And they will one day uh, know their fate. And, and one day will we'll know their eternity um, uh, along with Satan. So... Uh, Colossians speaks uh, a couple of places there about principalities, but we know that he has full authority. The Lord has full authority over them. He has full power over them. And uh, one day, uh, or the day that, that he died on the cross, he made a show of them, it says there in Colossians 2.15, triumphing over them. And so um, they have been defeated. It's just a matter of time before those principalities and powers see their fate. Um, we talked about authority over creation and then also authority over the church. He is the head of the church. We saw in chapter 1, verse 17 uh, through uh, 19. We talked about that one in, in Colossians. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay. We talked about this a little bit when we studied Ephesians, and that's the word mystery. Um, a mystery is something that is known by God for His purposes. It's concealed, that is, it's hidden during the Old Testament time. It's not seen in the Old Testament. There are sometimes they'll have references that Paul will write reflecting back on something from the Old Testament, and we see how it's uh, now revealed in the New Testament. For example, um, according to Isaiah 60, verse 3, we know that the Lord had said way back in the Old Testament that He would indeed one day um, uh, bring His salvation to the Gentiles. But even though that's in the Old Testament, no one had an idea that God's ultimate plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles was to bring them into one body with, uh, with Jews that are saved. That Jew and Gentile would be in one body together. And look at Colossians 1, um, verse 20, let's see, 27. I think I've got 28 up there. should be 27, rather. To whom God will make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the Old Testament, it wasn't a mystery that God was going to one day extend salvation to the Gentiles. The mystery is, like, like even the, for the Jews that get saved, when they trust Christ, He dwells in them. See, that wasn't known in the Old Testament because an indwelling Christ was not, they, were, they had no clue of that in the Old Testament. It's a mystery that's revealed in the New Testament. So we see God's purpose for believing Gentiles it's just as for a believing Jew, Christ indwells us. He lives within us. He is the hope of glory. He lives within us. So 
Verse 27, again, I put 28 on the screen. That should be 27. So that's a mystery uh, found in Colossians and very important concerning Gentiles. All right, um, chapter 2, verse 4, there are warnings that, we, that he gives. Uh, we said uh, way back, let me see, let me go back to the outline here. Uh, the answer to humanism is the point that we were looking at in chapter 2, verse 1 to 15. And so um, in doing so, he talks about words that are unbiblical and ideas that are unbiblical. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. The word beguile means to deceive with a, you know, with the purpose of deception to deceive for that purpose. Not just to deceive somebody accidentally, but to have a purpose to do it. Um, one, the, the best example of all is the Bible says that um, when Eve in, in Genesis 3, when she was tempted by the serpent, it says that he beguiled Eve. That is, he willfully, intentionally deceived her. So Paul says, um, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you, through enticing words. Uh, and the verse before that, he says, in whom are hidden all, or hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that um, don't let anybody use fancy enticing words that sound good but have nothing to do with Jesus is what he's saying. Then ideas that are in biblical. That is, he warns about philosophy. Chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The word philosophy simply means a love of wisdom. So the word in and of itself is not a bad word, but that phrase love of wisdom um, is, is seen in other places in Scripture. Proverbs, of course, is a book we, we talk about as a book of wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom, and the word wisdom found in Proverbs a lot. Back over in Acts chapter 17, during one of Paul's missionary journeys, he comes, uh, he comes through the city of Athens, Greece. And that's basically was a capital for philosophers and philosophy. And uh, Acts 17, verse 16 to 18, Paul um, gets in a discussion with some of those there that, were, um, that had made all these shrines to these different philosophers and then some of them to, to even to false gods and so forth. And then 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about where our true wisdom is found. So philosophy is a love of wisdom. Well, over in 1 Corinthians, he says this to the believers there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then you skip down to chapter 1, verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Paul warns in, excuse me, in Colossians 2, verse 8, about um, philosophy that's after men, after uh, man's tradition, after the rudiments of the world, not after the things of Christ. And so he warns there about philosophy. So there's some other references there. Um, in uh, James as well, chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, about philosophy. Then uh, we mentioned in chapter 2 also, um, Paul talks about um, religion in some way or another. Chapter 2, verse 16, uh, talk about some of the observances of the Old Testament. We already talked about how, where he said, don't anybody judge you in those days uh, that if they, if they um, 
observe those holiday, those holy days, and you don't. He said, don't let them judge you because of that. Those, those days are, um, there's nothing in the New Testament letters that command us that we have to observe Passover or anything like that, or the Sabbath for that matter. We don't, we don't worship on the Sabbath, we worship on the first day of the week. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 18, Let no man beguile you through reward and a voluntary humility, or worshiping of angels, including, uh, intruding to those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And uh, within that verse would be what we call what, what they used to call back in the 80s and 90s a New Age movement. It has a different name now, but it's the same thing. And uh, he even mentions worship of angels. In fact, there are a lot of people that believe in angels that don't necessarily believe in God or don't necessarily believe in Jesus, but they do believe in angels. And um, there are some, there, there are those, there are books out there, unfortunately, um, about angels that aren't biblical. And there, there are books that uh, Paul warns about there about, uh, about um, uh, a humanistic view, new, what we would call new age concerning angels. Then in chapters 3 and 4, we said those are practical chapters, and they talk about the believer's relationships. Uh, chapter 1, verse 17, the believer's relationship with the Lord. We looked at um, some verses already from that earlier, where it says to set our affection on things above, and to uh, let God's peace, verse 15, rule in our hearts. Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, verse 16. Then verse 17, whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. So um, chapter 3, verse 1 to 17, those verses um, spend a great deal of time talking about our relationship with the Lord. And then chapter 3, in that same section, verse 5 to 19, in dealing with our relationship with the Lord, it talks about battling our old sin nature. And then chapter 3, verse 10 to 16, obeying our new uh, nature in Christ. 3 verse 18 to 21, believer's relationship with, his, with the family. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Verse 20, fathers, provoke not your children to anger. And so um, talks about the relationship with our family and then relationship at work. Uh, in those days, they had servants and masters, but they're, they're things that apply to the believer uh, on the job, even though we, we don't have the same setup as they had. There's still a relationship at work and being a good employee, knowing that we serve the Lord. It says there, verse 23, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Verse 24, Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And then uh, relationships with those in the church, chapter 4, verse 2, continue in prayer, watch the same with thanksgiving. And then verse 3 to 6, our relationship with unsaved people, it tells us to, to uh, let our speech be seasoned with grace and walk with wisdom towards those that are unbelievers. The last thing I want to do is uh, spend just a few moments before we close on a couple of key people in chapter 4. Very similar to some of Paul's other letters, his last chapter in a lot of his letters, he spends time greeting different believers that are in that particular church or that... Um, have come from another region or something, another city, to minister to people in that church. And uh, we saw it when we looked in uh, 1 Corinthians, when we, we got the last chapter there, I think in Romans also. And we'll see it again in, the, um, in Paul's letter to Timothy, at least t uh, Timothy chapter two, uh, 4, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4. But here you see several folks, and we're not going to spend time on all of them because a couple of them he'll talk about in one of his later letters. 
But here in chapter 4, verse 17 to 18, Paul talks about some of his faithful friends. And um, if you ever read through Colossians, uh, rather than skipping those names there, uh, take the time to see how they're described when you read about these, these folks that he mentions. In fact, look at chapter 4, verse uh, 11. We're going to skip there for just a moment. And Jesus, which is called Justice. So there was another man named Justice who also had the same name, Jesus. Uh, apparently that was a fairly common name in the day. And apparently he was Jewish because Jesus is a you know, Jewish name. It means the Lord is salvation, which is, also, uh, which is called Justice, who are the circumcision that is of, Gent- of Jews, not Gentiles. These are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. So these, these folks that he's about to mention are fellow workers, fellow laborers in serving the Lord. And one of them is a man, verse 7, named Tychicus. Verse, uh, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord. There's a man named Tychicus who apparently had been able to visit Paul there in prison while he was in prison. And he is one that Paul sent back to the believers there to send them word personally from Paul um, and to send them word to encourage them. Yes, he's in prison, um, folks. Yes, he is suffering for his faith by being in prison, but he loves you. He's praying for you. And um, he's, he's got this letter that he's written that's, that, that I'm, you know, that, that's coming to you. And so he's there. He was sent there to encourage them. And he's called a fellow servant. And he's faithful. Boy, that's a great, great description uh, of a person that they're faithful. He's called a faithful minister. Then there's a man named Onesimus, verse 9. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. So Onesimus and Tychicus both were faithful men that Paul was able to send to the believers there at Colossae. So there's two of them there. There are a couple of them mentioned in chapter 10 that we're going to actually come back to later uh, in uh, another, another letter of Paul's. And then there are a couple of them in chapter 4 and verse 14. But we're going to look at one more, verse 12. And he mentions a man named Epaphras. And if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 7, he's mentioned in the greeting of, um, of uh, Colossians in the 7th verse of chapter 1, that same man, Epaphras. But it says this in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. Now, he wasn't a pastor, so to speak, but he was uh, just another brother in Christ like they were. And he says he's a servant of Christ, saluteth you, and look at this great description of this man, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That is a real friend. A praying friend is a real friend. And Epaphras was a friend to the believers there at Colossae. And Paul describes him as being uh, a servant of Christ, and that he prays, labors fervently in prayer. James 5 verse 16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so he's praying for them that they'll stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What a great uh, friend. What a great prayer partner. But um, when Paul writes and greets and mentions different ones, he doesn't do it just for small talk. There's a reason for it. And these were faithful, faithful people that love the Lord. Um, another one real quick is a man named Nymphas, N-Y-M. P-H-A-S. And the Bible says that he has a church in his house. Verse number um, 15. 
If you were here Sunday morning, Sunday school, I was teaching for Chad, and I was teaching about Paul before he was saved. And then, of course, it ended up, I mean, we talked about his salvation too. But before he was saved, Paul was one of those that were going into people's houses and bringing them out. They were worshiping God and worshiping this Jesus and persecuting them for their faith. So when Paul got saved... Um, it gave the church some respite because <laughs> now he was a believer and he wasn't, he wasn't being, you know, doing what he once was, but there still was persecution going on. And there was still a risk to take if you, you know, if they found a church in your house, it was a risk to take. And so this man uh, put his house, his whole household out there, on, you know, at risk by having a church there. And so Paul commends him for his faith and, and, um, having a church there meeting in his house, which many, many of them, that's what they had to do in those days. Um, Romans 16, there's a couple uh, named Aquila and Priscilla who also had a church in their house, and then there's a mention in Philemon verse 2. When we get there in a few weeks, we'll see that also. All right, chapter 1, verse 10 is a great verse about Christian growth. Um, we didn't look at that verse, I don't think. But it says, or we, we looked at it as part of the prayer, Paul, that you might worthy, uh, walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a great verse about Christian growth. And then in chapter 1, verse 28, uh, as the goal of Christian growth, Paul says that we'll present every man perfect, their spiritual maturity in Christ. Then chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 uh, many years ago when I became a pastor, these were two of the verses that I, that I claim to be ministry verses for me. Verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. It starts out with that verse 6, that word as. When you see the word as, it means it's connecting another idea or comparing something. So as you've received Christ Jesus, he says, so walk in him. How do we receive him? We receive him by faith. So because of that, we are to walk by faith. So he says, just as you receive Christ by faith, continue your daily walk in Christ by faith. And in doing that, be rooted and built up in him. Let your spiritual roots get deep. Let them get strong. Let them get deep. Get way down there into the nutrients of, of the spiritual soil where you can get nutrients to grow. Uh, the trees that grow the strongest are those who have the deepest roots. And so he uses that idea for Christian growth. So that's the goal of Christian growth and, and uh, or excuse me, of salvation and, and discipleship together is a ministry goal. Then chapter 3, verse 17 and verse 23 and 24 are great verses about motivation spiritually. Verse 17, whatsoever you do in word or deed. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God and the Father by Him. Verse 23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Why is that? Verse 24, knowing that of the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. He's going to reward us whether other people do or not. The Lord certainly, certainly will. And then chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, we talked about that when we got there, but it's about our testimony before others. He says, um, verse... Actually, it's down verse 4 to 6, it should be. Then I might make, make it manifest that I ought to speak, talking about the gospel. Um, verse 5, walking in wisdom towards them that are without, those that are outside, those that are unsaved people. And then it says, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you might know how to answer every man. Um, unsaved people 
they, they're, they're going to sometimes look for an answer from, from us. Jesus in Colossians. Well, as in Paul's letters, all the others we've seen since Romans, he loves that phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it's, it's, uh, he uses that phrase because it reflects the fact that he is the risen Christ. He died, was buried, and rose again. And because of that, he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, home address, some great verses to uh, memorize. Uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 8, warns us, beware of philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. Chapter 2, verse, I don't think that's right. It shouldn't be 3 to 14. I don't think that's right. Let me get over there to it. Um, I think that's supposed to be verse 3 and 4. Chapter 2, let me, let me check that again. Actually, it's supposed to be 13 and 14. So rather than 3 through 14, it should be 13 and 14. Um, you quicken together, forgiving all our trespasses, verse 13, blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. We are totally, totally forgiven. That should be 13 and 14, not 3 through 14. And then 3, verse 2 and 3 tells us to set our affection on things above. And then verse 4, as you can find in almost every one of Paul's letters, somewhere there's a reference to the rapture. And there is one there in verse 4 of chapter 3. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. When he comes back for his church, we'll be with him. So those are some great verses to memorize from Colossians. Um, uh, don't have any from chapter 4. I'm sure there are some, but um, those from chapters 1, 2, and 3. All right, let's stop there. For now, any questions or any anything on Colossians input or anything? Okay, we'll break next week, and then Lord willing, we may actually put First and Second Thessalonians together. First um, Thessalonians has five chapters; Second Thessalonians has three. But um, we may put them together. We may split them up. I'll have to wait and see because um, those two letters go together so well. It may be may be good to do them both the same night. But I'll, I'll see what kind of time we've got on those. All right, well, let's stay in closing prayer and we'll dismiss. Thank you, Lord, for the day you blessed us with, and uh, thank you for a time to be in your word tonight and open it and to study it. And thank you, Lord, for the wonderful truths of promises, the, the verses that we've studied in Colossians, um, another small four-chapter book that has a lot in it, Lord. We thank you for that book and the things we've seen tonight. We pray that you'll help us uh, as we saw those key verses about growing in grace to continue to grow in grace and knowledge of our Savior. I pray that you'll watch over us as we leave from here tonight and we look forward to Christmas time. I pray that you'll keep, keep us safe as we uh, look forward to Sunday and, and Monday for Christmas Eve and Christmas, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.